This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, all you Lasso fans. Welcome back to Peanut Butter and Biscuits. I'm your host for today, Craig, joined by my wonderful co-host, Mr. Jeremy Geckner. What's up, everyone? I feel like it's been a while. I feel like we've been away for a little while. Um, I hope we you have been. Too much. Not, as lo- not away as long as Ted, our, our beloved Ted, has been. <laughs> no kidding. And, you know, I think that that's the thing. Is like, we want to make sure we try to bring you some new content. We also... Uh, really are looking forward to all that season three content. But, you know, we actually have a great episode to bring you today. It was uh, great to get to touch base with the folks over at Coach Beard's Book Club. The ladies over there decided to invite us on to talk all things One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And it was just a delight to get a chance to talk to them. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Um, I got to tell you, like, you know, I've never actually been in a book club. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think like AP English in high school counts. <laughs> I don't think it counts when you're getting a grade for it. But yeah, this was just a lot of fun because it reminded me of just like how in depth you can talk about a book um, as opposed to a film. I mean, you can go really in depth in a film and everything, but you're talking more about like aesthetics and like look and feel and like performances and stuff. And with a book, you really get to like dive into the subtext and like dive into like just what's right there on the page. Like I did not expect to learn so much about like the landscape of upper Oregon um, as we did in this. And I was just like sitting there like fascinated by all this because we're talking about one flow of the cuckoo's nest. Also just a really definitive book. Um, and these ladies were just so knowledgeable, so fun to be around, so fun to talk to. Again, man, I'm just always blown away by the Lasso community. I don't know about you, but like, it's just, there's so many great, intelligent people out there. There really are. And it's such a loving community of content creators as well. And I did want to bring that up uh, before we get into the episode. You know, the last thing that was posted on this thread was actually a message from me. Uh, it was shortly posted. I'll let you know after my aunt uh, passed away kind of unexpectedly. And I just have to tell you that the outpouring of support that I had received after posting that, not only from my my own co-host here, but uh, just people within the Lasso community, uh, friends that honestly traditionally don't necessarily listen to uh, the podcast that we do, and they gave it a listen and then also just reached out. And it just, it meant an awful lot, you know, to, to have that. And I really do appreciate it. I want to let you know that, you know, at the time that we posted that, I, I didn't really know too much about the uh, individual situation, but um, it was, she did succumb to her addiction. And so it is something that uh, is still, still grieving uh, her loss um, the, about a month later now. But I just wanted to make sure I passed along that uh, we really do appreciate the support our whole family does that all of you gave to us uh, over the last month here and just it's great because i mentioned it in the episode and when we talk to the ladies here that immediately people like kenny from lasso cast and tori from their soulmates i mean like these content creators that we only know through the lasso space just reached out and it meant a lot to me so i really appreciate that 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, there's, you know, everything that you said there, I've got nothing more to add. It's, uh, it's amazing. All the, all the support that we got. And of course that um, you got from them. And uh, once again, everybody just taking Ted's message to heart and making the world a better place. There is a quick note about this episode, which is that um, we aren't in all of it. <laughs> we had, unfortunately, um, both of us had to go get our children um, from their schools respectively. So we didn't get to stay for the whole episode, but the time that we did get to, like I said, was just such a blast. And we've already made it very clear to the coach of book club that we would love to come back and do with the full freight with them because uh, it's just a, a whole hell of a lot of fun absolutely and i'll say that you know i was listening back to their episode because one of the things i said when i left was like i'm really excited to listen to the rest of this and it's like almost immediately after we left um i think I that it was <laughs> bex well no they they said um i think it might have been bex but she had said you know i really wish the guys were here because i'd love to get their opinion on this and so I thought maybe we could like kind of inception it here before a part of their book club. Yeah. yeah so uh, before you hear it in the book club that's coming up soon, she said something to the effect of why do we think that Ted uh, hides or doesn't really want to go into therapy or hides like he, he's really resistant to therapy. And so I didn't prep you on this at all, Jer. And it's been a second since we've psychoanalyzed our good friend, Ted Lasso. But <laughs> why do you think he's so reticent to therapy? Uh, well, I think that he, you know, obviously they address some of this, I believe, in his big breakthrough moment. Uh, I think in episode nine of season two, or maybe it's 11. Um, but there is like this moment where I think like when Ted finally opens up about the circumstances of his father's death and um, you know, his whole big regret about all of that, the thing he most takes away from that is that he felt like he didn't tell his dad that he was a good dad enough or that he, you know, cared for him enough as many times or as often as he should. And that he feels that that contributes in some way to that. So I think that Ted's mind is all about actions. It's all about the action of telling somebody something. It's all about that. It's like the internal struggle for him, I don't think is where he feels like the bones are made. You know, like he, he would rather spend his time actually out there telling people what they mean to him than trying to figure it out on his own is what I think. I would say that too. And you know, I, I do have to give you grief only because you said it was episode nine of season two. And of course, immediately I knew that that is actually Beard After Hours. So I was yeah. like, come on, Jeremy, you're 11, like the biggest 11. Beard After Hours fan here. Uh, but no, I think Four weddings right. and a I think that, yeah. No weddings at a funeral. I think they, they also talk about it really. Um, it it kind of starts even when you start to learn about the uh, divorce and the relationship kind of deteriorating or, or moving apart from each other with him and Michelle and how they tried to do the marriage counselor thing. They went to yeah. her therapist. Um, and so I think that that kind of put like this, almost like he felt that the therapist was out to get him almost like a, it, it became a, a, a very potentially, um, what word am I looking for here? Not aggressive yeah, he relationship. Said, I think but, he says something like he feels like they were ganging up on him. Like it was like, yeah. a, it was all about changing him and not like the situation. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, so I think that, you know, that's that's our little bit of what we think as far as why maybe Ted is avoiding therapy or doesn't really want to address therapy 
Um, and so that was something they mentioned right after we left. So we thought that we would mention it now. But with that, I think we just want to dive right into this episode. So I'll tell you that we're not going to come back at the end here. Mm-hmm. We're just going to let it play out because I think it would be weird for us to not be there and then to <laughs> just show up again. But about that last you will get, <laughs> absolutely, you will get about 45 minutes of Jeremy and I really trying to keep up with these ladies. And then once we get out of there, they can really just kind of jet off without us having to pull them back, right? So we're so grateful to the folks of Coach Beard's Book Club. We really, really want you to go and check them out. And Mm. what do we have coming up in the future before we go to this episode? Just very quickly, I am finally convincing Jeremy to check out Welcome to Wrexham. I promise you we will get that to you. And then I do thank everyone. I think they're going to give us some Christmas gift here and show us a trailer for Ted Lasso season three in the not too distant future. I think that they really are focusing on a spring 2023 release. And uh, we're starting to see things like Arlo White just posted the other day that he is wrapped on filming of season three. So we do know that they are coming to an end of some of those hardcore soccer scenes that maybe people were predicting might have made filming be a little bit longer. I know that that's been one of your theories, Jeremy. So I think we'll get some lasso news soon. And you know that as soon as we get lasso news, we will come running back to our microphones. But for now, (laughs) uh, please join along as we join Coach Beard's book club and talk One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Hi, welcome to Coach Beard's Book Club. I'm Michaela, Coach Beard's assistant. Together with Andrea, Bex and Marita, we'll be diving into the books mentioned or seen in the Apple TV series, Ted Lasso. If you love Ted Lasso, as much as Danny loves giving away joy for free, then join this group of four women, handpicked by Beard himself, and let's go. Hi, welcome back Greyhounds. I hope everybody's doing great. This week we have some special guests from one of my favourite Ted Lasso podcasts, Peanut Butter and Biscuits. We have Craig and we have Jeremy. Welcome both. Hey, thanks for having us. What is up? Happy to be here. Uh, I should say that for the the audio files out there from Coach Beard Book Club, uh, I am Craig. And the other voice you hear is not Craig. Yes, that is, you can call me Jeremy, but not Craig is my, you know, most known moniker around, around the front row network and stuff. That's That's fair. fair. Thanks for clarifying that. I need, (laughs) I need all the help I can get. Of course. So we're reading One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Bex, I think you have a summary for any who might not have been able to catch up with it. Yes. Uh, so One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a 1962 novel by Ken Kesey. It is set in a psychiatric hospital in Oregon and intentionally or not serves as a study of institutional processes and of the human mind, including a critique of psychiatry at the time. According to Goodreads, tyrannical nurse Ratchet rules her ward in, or- in an Oregon state mental hospital with a strict and unbending routine, unopposed by her patients who remained cowed by mind-numbing medication, and the threat of electric shock therapy. But her regime is disrupted by the arrival of Randall Patrick McMurphy, the swaggering, fun-loving trickster with a devilish grin, who resolves to oppose her rules on behalf of his fellow inmates. 
His struggle is seen through the eyes of Chief Bromden, a seemingly deaf and mute half-Indian patient who understands McMurphy's heroic attempt to do battle with the powers that keep them imprisoned. Ken Kesey's extraordinary first novel is an exuberant, ribald, and devastatingly honest portrayal of the boundaries between sanity and madness. And I just have to say, like, I feel like this summary, you know, I like I said, I took it from Goodreads. It really unfairly centers Nurse Ratchet and McMurphy over Chief, oh. but I'm... <laughs> oh, I'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And the next up, we have the appearance in Ted Lasso. Why are we covering this book in the first place? So in season one, episode nine, which is All Apologies, if I remember correctly, Ted and Beard are sitting in the crown and anchor, and Ted tells Beard that he's, quote, a natural-born caregiver like Chief from Cuckoo's Nest. Although, given the fact that Beard replies, I was always more of a Tabor guy, I think it's likely he was actually referencing the film. And my thoughts on that are because Tabor is played by Christopher Lloyd in the film, and Beard's Lloyd impression, at least the one we hear uh, from Back to the Future as Doc Brown, is spot on. So I figured that was the parallel there really i'm glad you said that because i read that whole book and didn't know who the fuck Tabor was, was like, <laughs> where did i miss that wait a minute filmmakers took liberties <laughs> it's early in the book and whether or not what is intentional in ted lasso there is a little bit more to unpack here because of who Tabor was in the book right so in the novel Tabor isn't contemporaneous with mcmurphy right he's a previous person there who's a story that they tell and what's implied in what happened in, in what's conveyed to McMurphy is that he stirred things up and fought back against the machine, ended up released back into society, but only after he was lobotomized and basically rendered completely inert. And so it's really interesting to see Beard identify like that because he's effectively a cautionary tale, right? <laughs> and so to see Beard identify as that too. But I also think it's interesting because Ted refers to Beard when he's talking about him as chief, as a caregiver, and chief isn't right he uses cleaning tasks as a way to silently observe everything like he mops and he knows things but he doesn't take care of people and the only caregiving task he does is when he puts the pillow over mcmurphy's face after he's <laughs> lobotomized right so ted is a, a, approaching this caregiver task with someone who euthanizes someone <laughs> and i think that's really really interesting and it's especially interesting because when he calls beard chief as a caregiver it's when beard has this whole line of beers up in front of him and so that sort of deadening of the senses it, that whole imagery there particularly given ted's relationship to alcohol I, I think there's maybe a little bit to unpack but i thought that was interesting jeremy this podcast is so much smarter than us yeah um, i don't we're, we're out of our element here uh we are <laughs> you're not you're not i i have to throw in that i so i watched the movie and read the book and like basically the key differences are Tabor. Mm -hmm. uh then uh what's his name I, i'm gonna forget their names billy and um cheswick kind of switch mm -hmm. places a little bit and yeah. like so it's like these like very key characters and like specifically what i think they're talking about in ted lasso is almost like i'm like they're talking about the movie and not the book that was my take of yeah, it yeah i i could see that but yeah. since we're a book club we went to the book yes. anyway <laughs> of course 
Well, and I don't want to jump in out of turn either, but you know, I I really appreciate that we get so much more. Of course, any adaptation, you're going to get more out of the book as far as character development is concerned. But I also think it's great. I mean, really, in a way, they minimize Chief's role in the movie so much because we're seeing all of this from his perspective in the book. And I think that's a really unique and interesting perspective because exactly what you were just talking about. uh, I've always loved there's a there's a book out there called Perks of Being a Wall. Flower. For a long time, it was uh, one of my favorites. And actually, it was a pretty well done um, movie adaptation, perhaps Ezra Miller's, uh, you know, issues aside. But what I'll say is that, like, I love that idea of having that person that is the wallflower that is kind of observing and maybe starting to take on some of these characteristics, but never is really fully able to um, side one way or another until we get to that uh, pivotal moment, that climactic moment in whatever literature you're reading. And I, I love that this book used Chief as our as our chief narrator here. And I I thought that that was much different than the movie, of course. And a reason why, if you're listening to this, especially whether you're listening to it from the the PBB feed or not, like I think it's worth going back and checking out the book because you get so much more. These are very rich characters. And I think that's that really comes through in the literature for sure. I just had this weird thought as you were talking about this is like, what if we had the Ted Lasso novelization and Beard was the narrator. Beard ah. is the narrator Ooh. of Ted Lasso. Come on, guys. Oh, I would love that. That would be amazing. Beard is totally. Said in the past, he knows all. So <laughs> that, would, that makes sense. Beard knows everything, including, uh, you know, the uh, simulation theory. Um, and, you know, uh, Craig actually also talks about that, too. It's like, you know, since we come from a movie background and everything, I think that, you know, movies want to simplify things so much for their audiences, especially at this point in filmmaking history, too. Um, You know, Chief also in the book is you can't actually say probably that he's a reliable narrator in a sense. Um, There are some ways that, you know, we can really, when we're reading the book, kind of doubt whether or not we're hearing everything exactly as it happened, or at least if it's colored in a certain way. Um, The other big difference, though, to me, though, and I don't want to jump anything here, is though, is like I like in the book how we stick with Chief because McMurphy in the book is not as like noble as they make Jack Nicholson out to be um, in the movie um, in any sense of the way. And, you know, in that sense, you know, again, filmmakers want to simplify. They want a, a a protagonist that has good intentions and is admirable in many certain ways. And there are certain admirable qualities or things that McMurphy does, but you never really get the sense in the book that he's doing them for the sake of doing them. There's always an angle that that's at work uh, with it. And so, I don't know. I think that maybe the caretaker part of it comes from, you know, like McMurphy does seem to be, even though for selfish purposes, the only one who's actually in an, a roundabout way looking out for the well-being of these people, because clearly Nurse Ratched isn't. Clearly these staff that Nurse Ratched beats down and berates and, and keeps under her thumb aren't looking out for them. So it's weird that in a way that these inmates, um, you know, sort of have to care for themselves in that way. So I guess take your pick as to which one you want to be the caretaker. I mean, the movie, it seems like McMurphy, but maybe there's some stuff that Chief does for them that we don't know um, from the book that you can just infer. How good would this have been if it had been made today from the the narrator Chief's perspective Mm. as some sort of dark Roger Rabbit with the animation being things that he was seeing, kind Mm. of like Miss Marvel-esque with the stuff going on. I would love that. Somebody should reboot it. 
Yeah, <laughs> I'm always, I'm not usually for remakes, but like, yeah, when there's something that you can gain from it like that, the only problem with that is, you know, it's regarded as one of the best films of all time. So there would inevitably be the, can you know, comparison inertia that nobody would give it its fair shake. So, right. Although I think it'd be interesting to to put that in the hands of a, since it's told from an indigenous standpoint, to actually put it in the hands of indigenous filmmakers. Uh, I think you would just have an entirely different film. I, I think so different it would be it would at least kick aside some of those comparisons because it would be so different yeah mini series <laughs> anyway marina <laughs> all right so i'm gonna dive in and this is my my disclaimer right up the front i love Keezy so much i am i grew up in the pacific northwest uh maybe 50 miles from where he grew up um not far at all the language he uses the characters he describes the things that happen in his books um, just are so authentic in terms of my experience growing up, even though I'm a generation younger, you know, my parents picked green beans growing up, like when they were too young to, you know, that was like child labor laws, it was all they'd let them do. When he writes about salmon fishing, all of that stuff is so familiar to me that even McMurphy, part of the reason he's so irritating to me in the book is like, I know 10 of that guy, not in the context of a mental institution, but like, who talks exactly like that. I'm from family of like loggers on both sides and truckers. And it's, it's so authentic to a Pacific Northwest voice that um, I get really excited talking about Kesey. Although I'm going to say this is my heartfelt plea to anyone from the Ted Lasso show who might hear this. Uh, Sometimes a Great Notion is his better book. And so if you could just slip that into a scene on a <laughs> shelf somewhere, make it visible for like a second, Andrea can pick it out. We can put it on the book club list and I can make everyone read all 650 pages of that. That would be glorious. <laughs> I would be that so would be happy. That'll be a long audio book. <laughs> it's so good. Um, but, but talking about Cuckoo's Nest, uh, I think the first thing to do is acknowledge that there are definitely problematic aspects to Kesey appropriating the voice of an indigenous man to narrate the story. And obviously seen very differently in 1960 than it would be now, but I think it's worth uh, you know pointing that out. Uh, we discussed it a little bit, but Kesey initially wrote his own screenplay for the film adaptation. They didn't use it. And he was really pretty upset that they didn't keep the chief as the narrator because he said it was effectively the chief's story. And I, you know, I see what they did there in terms of kind of what they were trying to say with the movie, uh, in terms of making Ratchet really the only villain. I'm not sure it's really original to have the beautiful woman be the oppressive force. I think that's just the misogyny of the seventies or always really um, going on there, but it is kind of an interesting commentary on society that they marginalized the, the native voice in favor of something that was very white centered. Reading the novel itself. I mean, the, the novel is narrated from chief's perspective. Uh, a lot of people read him as being paranoid schizophrenic, um, reading from his perspective, there's also a lot of academics that approach the way he talks about things in different ways that I think are kind of interesting. In an overall reading of the novel, and it gets assigned in so many high schools, some of the metaphors are really not subtle, right? So we look at the whole book highlights how many ways Chief has lost his identity. He doesn't have his voice. Uh, people assume he can't hear or communicate, and that stems not from his time in the mental institution, but all the way back to when he was a kid. Uh, his father's name, his father being an important chief that's been taken from him. And I, I think it's interesting, and here's a Ted Lasso parallel, we never get his first name, right? And so if we look at this, if we want to do a Mad Libs, if you did title and then descriptive noun, you could get either Chief Broom or Coach Beard. And I think that's fun, right? We have that same sort of setup where there's that stripping of identity. That's so cool. This is what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> 
So without any other context at all, we can see what Kesey's doing because he's comparing effectively U.S. government policy towards Native folks um, throughout the history of the U.S. government to what's happening on the ward, right? We have this cruelty while claiming you're doing what's best for people, this forced assimilation or forced conformity, an absolute lack of acknowledgement of that people can have equally valid but different ways of seeing themselves that don't conform to what everyone else has going on. And I think that's a big overlying theme that we have in the book. And I think a lot of that, even without the um, in, indigenous voice in there, is there in the movie. But you can easily get to the idea that this forced conformity, when you have forced conformity like that, it's really easy to see the explanation for why we have all these voluntary patients on the ward. When people have a conception of themselves that's so different than what they're supposed to have, it's easy to see themselves as defective when really they're just different, right? And I think that's where the movie really gets Kesey's point. I'm gonna talk uh, a little bit more about the indigenous voices and there's um, multiple people who've uh, written a lot on this. Um, so some of the papers I've read, uh, Ashley Reese, Kimberly Connor have papers on this, but if I quote, in the next few minutes, I'm going to be quoting from a paper called Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Damming the Columbia River and Traumatic Loss. And that's in a journal called Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and Environment by Christopher Leese. Uh, and so the book talks a lot about Lilo Falls and the Dalles in the childhood of the chief. Uh, and if you're not from the area, it can be really easy to sort of gloss over that. Obviously, it's the source of loss and like sadness for chief that this happened. Um, but Celilo Falls is really, really a big deal. So you have the Columbia River. It comes down from British Columbia through Washington and then is most of the border between Washington and Oregon. And starting early on in settlement, uh, people started trying to redirect the flow of the Columbia and what happened. And then really starting in the 40s and on into the post-war period, they started damming up various sections of the Columbia River to provide irrigation water and hydroelectric power. And so why this matters is Celilo Falls is, it's hard to overstate the importance of it to all sorts of indigenous tribes within the area because it's the oldest, Celilo Village is the oldest continually occupied place in Oregon. People would be living there continuously for, I think the estimates I've seen is like 11,000 years. So what happens is the Columbia River is a very big river, but there's a series of rapids that used to be present just east of the Dalles that would come. And over the course of nine miles, there's these basalt formations that would really, really narrow uh, the river. And so when the salmon would migrate upstream to spawn, they get disoriented, they have to jump in the rapids. And so it's this amazing salmon fishing spot, right? You spear or net things coming out of the river. And if you look at old footage of Celilo Falls, it's this amazing and kind of terrifying hand-built wooden scaffolds and platforms and things that people would go out on to fish. It's, it, it is absolutely worth looking up what people did there. Um, but as a result of this being such an amazing fishery, and there have been sort of speculation that it was the most productive fishery sort of for indigenous folks anywhere on North American continent. So it's a, a huge fishery. People would come from all over Chinookan language people would come over from the coast and there's all this sort of intermixing and cultural sort of intermixing of tribes when people would come in seasonally for the salmon run. So Celilo Falls is a, like a huge, huge, huge deal. So when they put the Dalles, the Dalles Dam in, uh, you can actually see there, someone online has a slideshow of it. The backfill when they closed the dam drowned Celilo Falls. 
And so you have this massive waterfall and these massive rapids that you could hear for miles and miles and miles away. And all of a sudden the water just rises and you have instead of this massive rapid, just this big lake, basically. And it was absolutely, absolutely devastating to sort of all sorts of tribal populations from the Columbia Plateau. Uh, the same sort of thing happened 20-ish years earlier when they dammed, put in the Great Coulee Dam and, and drowned Kettle Falls. But it's a culturally a big, big deal. So writing about the spiritual significance of the salmon to the native folks, uh, Lise writes, this is a quote, Salilo area Native Americans explain the sacrality of salmon according to his willingness to keep human people alive. As regional tales frequently relate, humankind was the weakest creation of all the creator's efforts. Seeing them struggle pitifully, Salmon came forward and offered himself to the region's human persons as a source of sustenance on the condition that humans honor his habitat by caring for it. Following his lead, other game animals stepped up and offered themselves in similar terms. For this reason, plateau people's religious ceremonies typically open with blessings of water and salmon. So from, you know, white people's perspective, People were cheerleading the dam, right? It would allow power, electricity, irrigation. But from a native perspective, it's not just something kind of sad, like you're not missing the fishing hole you went, went to with your dad, right? This is making it impossible for them to fulfill their spiritual duties. And it, it's just culturally devastating. It's not like just sort of a downer. It's a very, very big deal. Uh, and I think Kesey understood that. So if we look at when this happens, uh, the drowning of Salilo Falls doesn't work temporarily with where we're at in the book because it happened in 1957, right? The book takes place in 1960-ish. And Lise describes this as making the book an example of historiographic metafiction, which sort of treats history sort of subjectively, uh, kind of lets us control how we view history based on who's telling it. But I think the reason Kesey did that is, you know, we have Chief, we see him in his adolescence losing his father and his whole way of life and the falls, and then he goes to World War II, and that also contributes to his trauma. But I think having the loss of the falls first, I think, really cements that as the thing that was catastrophic to his mental health and well-being. Uh, and I think that's why, because Kesey would have known when the, the falls was drowned, he was frequently going to the Pendleton Roundup. I mean, he was in Oregon at the time, or near it anyway. Um, so I think it's interesting that he did it that way. But throughout the book, and this is why it's such a huge loss that we don't have Chief's voice in the movie, we can look at the water and the electricity inherent in a hydroelectric dam and see how they're manifesting in what we see in Chief's mental illness, right? He has this comparison of the machinery that he perceives in the ward. He calls it the combine, and he compares it to the inner workings of the dam, right? So you have the inner workings of the dam when... Uh, Settlers came in and started fishing too. They, instead of just spearing and netting, had this device called a fish wheel that would just pull fish out of the water for canning. We also have a silencing of chief that takes place. It's kind of a comparison to descriptions of what it was like when the falls were drowned, where you had this massive rushing of water that was just gradually coming in and silenced. Uh, when chief goes in the pool, there's definitely that episode where, you know, he feels diminished in size, so he's afraid of the deep water. Uh, which is not in proportion to his actual size. But then we have Cheswick drowning in the pool, which is very much related to that. We've got the electroshock treatments. And then as part of his recovery, he has to go out and face the water and go salmon fishing again in a way that I think draws all of these things together. And so I think that's really interesting because at the end, 
the thing that is the tool of his liberation, right, of the book is the hydrotherapy machine. And that's not arbitrary, right? That's the synthesis of electricity and water that he uses as what he uses to make his escape. And so that's, you know, Kesey's big on symbolism. Sometimes a great notion has a lot of water and erosion uh, and taking back what man has tried to build. Uh, and I think we have the water and the electricity here uh, from the hydroelectric dam that we see in Chief's story. So a question for you, because the electricity and the water represent his traumatic loss. So what do we see in Ted in his panic attacks that reflect back to his traumatic loss? Ooh. I feel like I'm in class right now. I'm supposed to be the professor. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I love it. <laughs> I want to say here, I... You know, we're we're drawing parallels between a show and a book when the when the book or the movie is just barely mentioned in the show, right? So this is like mm -hmm. wild speculation, but I genu I genuinely don't have a real defined answer here. So I'm curious to hear what y'all think. Well, you know, you could uh, make a case for Ted's entire um, outlook on life and his entire um, way of communicating and um, talking with people as being a byproduct of what happened with his father. I mean, he mentions that in the therapy session about like how he wishes you know, he could have told his dad that he was doing all right, you know, that he was a good dad. Right, right. And so it's kind of the sense that like, when you first meet Ted in the series, you are taken aback. And, uh, you know, of course, Dr. Sharon calls this out the first time she meets him, but that, you know, like he does bombard you with like this positive, like just atmosphere around him. Um, and it is kind of, I think he's terrified to death that he's going to never, that somebody's going to leave him that he won't be able to tell mm -hmm. them that they matter to him and stuff like that. So I think that it kind of manifests not so much in a physical thing, but just in the way he interacts with human beings. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's right. And maybe a little bit of fear of being abandoned too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Not, not a little bit, a lot of yeah. bit. <laughs> I mean, like I think the divorce aspect of, you know, when he divorces Michelle, what's his, what's his big worry is Henry. I mean, it's really, what's his son going to think of him because he lost his dad when he was young. So it's, yeah, it's, it's all there. <laughs> okay. So another interesting thing, uh, and I think this is the last thing I have to talk about is, you know, Kesey does appropriate the native voice, but as Lise points out in what he writes, he actually does this interesting thing with the, the way he uses the chief's perspective. So I'm going to quote Lise here for a second and says, with respect to indigenous selfhood, Arnold Krupat identifies in American Indian autobiography, which is the genre Kesey's novel appropriates, he identifies differing assumptions about the human personhood from presumed givens in European writing. And so here he's quoting Arnold Krupat. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of some words. That's the danger of learning everything through reading, right? <laughs> All right. So metomony is concerned with part-part relationships, while synecdity is concerned with part-whole relations. Here, I want to propose that while modern Western autobiography has been essentially a met metonymic in orientation, right, so we're comparing the person with other people, Native American autobiography has been and continues to be persistently synecdochic, and that preference for synecdochic models of the self has relations to the oral techniques of information transmission typical of Native American cultures. Okay, that was like a mouthful, but the general idea here is sort of indigenous perceptions of themselves always link themselves back to the whole uh, more so than just their relations to other people uh, and we actually kind of see that in how Kesey writes the chief so least points out when the chief talks about his father and actually uses the words that his father uses his choice of punctuation is interesting because he doesn't offset when when chief is talking and then goes into 
talking about what his father said, he doesn't offset his father's words with separate quotation marks. It's all part of what Chief is saying. And it's this interesting way of using himself to represent the whole and represent other people that he's related to um, that very much fits in with the way that uh, indigenous folks tend to write autobiographical in information. And I thought that was really interesting. And we see it also in the novel with Chief's healing has a lot to do with his relationship to the whole, right? When he finally gets out, he's not going out to be his own man, right? The first thing he wants to do is go back to the Dalles and back to Celilo and reconnect with anyone he can find that hasn't already just sort of, you know, completely been consumed by the combine, right? People who haven't been made crazy by drink or anything like that. And I want to tread really lightly here because uh, it's it would be super problematic to draw really tight comparisons between like a conception of self unique to indigenous folks and like a, a TV show about soccer. Um, but I, I do want to say that it's interesting how much Ted has this vision of himself, both in terms of his injury and his healing that's rooted in others, if not the whole community. Right. So he is not a self-centered, self-centric person. When he talks about his father's suicide, it is not something that happened to him. It's something that happened to him and his mom. Right. We've got the whole sad and alone speech from the end of season one, right? His version of community healing involves being part of the whole and everything, but being together. Um, and so I thought that was interesting and I would invite any commentary that anyone else has on that and how Ted sort of has more of that community feel than, than we typically, I think, frequently see. Well, part of it's his brand of leadership. I mean, that's just like, that. that is that sense of community. I mean, like, think about like even externally from the show think about the community that the show this show has built in two seasons that is just uh really remarkable i mean even uh look at what you were able to do i wanted to do this at some point in this episode uh blow all of you up because you're it's amazing that you all came together uh through this show and now you're doing this type of like really in-depth analysis on these pieces uh, and you're doing that from all over the country and you have someone from Illinois, so you're automatically awesome. And so, you know, yeah. like it's just, it's really great that like this sense of community that Ted inspires in people and telling you that you are not alone and that we've all been able to be through these trials and tribulations. And so it is uh, it is really interesting that also that's his way of personally healing as well, because I think uh, likely his biggest fear is to be alone, right? So And so it's one of those where like he's trying to make sure that he's building this community while it's also helping others, it's definitely helping himself and his sense of self. Uh, so I, I just think that that's kind of like it's within Ted. That's how he sees the world, that we should be a community moving forward. Yeah, it's also it's also a sports centric way uh, as well. You know, there's plenty of examples in sports history of teams that don't have like on paper the best players that uh, other people think, but the sum of the parts equals something better. Um, and, you know, you can see this in soccer all the time. I'm a big sports guy, but like this is, you know, Ted and his philosophy really goes and drills down into that, that when you're at the professional sports level, you're playing with uh, talent that is good enough to win. It's usually how you harness it that makes the big difference. Um, you know, in America right now, the baseball playoffs are going on and the Philadelphia Phillies were the last team into the playoffs and they're in the World Series now. And that's because 
you pull the right levers, you pull the right people and put the right people together and, you know, they can accomplish things and beat a record breaking team. Um, so it's one of those things that I think Ted, you know, his philosophy makes it so that the teamwork aspect is a practical thing on the field, not just in their relationships too, but it also, of course, bleeds into those. Love it. You you said you were out of place here, and that's not true. <laughs> well, I mean, you said we you were out of your depth. Yeah, well, I mean, we could we could BS with the best of them, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I worry I just nerded a little bit too hard, but that is all literary <laughs> analysis is though is just like BSing to the max. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Michaela, you have uh, an interesting take as well on this book, yeah? Okay, so my thoughts on Cuckoo's Nest, and I didn't hate it, which is which is great. This is a big difference from the last few books we've read. We've had struggles with them. If you've listened to our episodes, <laughs> it's usually me going, "Yo, y'all, it's it's okay. There's good things in here." You expected a fight. And you're like, you know, I had to ignore some shit. Let's not lie. Um, there was some just awful misogyny and awful racism in there. Um, again, I wanted to hear Marita's perspective because it was of its time. And I felt like in some areas it was like really progressive, but in others it was like really reductive. So so I, I did want to add something in there, if, if you don't mind, because of the racism element. So something that you probably wouldn't spot if you're not from or haven't spent time in Oregon. So... You know, Oregon, and they don't cover this very well in the school history they have, um, Oregon has a really horrific racial history in that, you know, we weren't on the South side, that we weren't a slaveholding state, but it was originally founded and in the original state constitution um, in a way that deliberately excluded Black people from living in the state, having any property rights, making any use of the legal system really badly and for many years. And the upshot of this is when it was settled, and moving forward, Oregon, Portland is the whitest major city in the United States, right? Oregon does not have a very large black population. I mean, they have, you know, the, the black community is is wonderful and thriving in the areas where they live. But a town like Salem, uh, which is kind of the city that I grew up close to where the, the hospital is. Uh, I know a lot of people who work in that hospital, actually. <laughs> um, so I looked up some demographics. So in, in 1960, Salem had 50,000 people. In the 2010 census, Salem is 1.3% Black. That is how few Black people live in Salem. So when you when you know that and you know how white Salem is, reading where you have all of the orderlies on the ward being Black, that was a, a deliberate choice on Kesey's part because he writes Oregon so well. Like he gets the voice down. Then that's That's an artificiality he put in there. I'm not saying it's not problematic. Mm -hmm. But what I think he was getting at there by having Ratchet be such a force for sort of evil, basically, and by having the Black orderlies being so willing to enforce that order was a commentary on how oppressed groups are willing to oppress other oppressed groups to try to get a little bit ahead. Damn it, she does it again. She does it again. <laughs> that, that actually fits in really well with with what's coming up. So I'll send you that five $5 later. That worked out quite well. Like I, I remember even saying it to you, Marita, early on in one in our chat, where like I'm like, there's something about the way Chief says the black boys that was like really just like there's like, like man putting in another person of color's mouth. Yeah, like not overtly racist, but at the same like there was a dehumanizing. Yes, and I'm I'm reading it, I hearing it, but like yeah. 
and and that's what I wasn't sure of if it was meant to be like that because it was him making a point rather than him, you know, being like that himself. But sometimes, you know, some points, some words don't need to be said even to make a point. Yeah, but I get what you're go what you're saying about that fits in really well actually. But I will say there are a, a lot of good quotes in this book. Um, I have so many favourites. I'm not going to go through them all, but I, I'll start with my first one: is he who walks out of step hears another drum. I really like that because it's it's a different take on it as well. It's not dance to the beat of your own drum, which we hear. It's like here's a different drum, and I felt like that fitted on quite well with what I wanted to talk about. Because I feel like Ratchet and McMurphy were kind of doing the same dance that Rebecca and Ted did in season one, but in like a much more sinister way. <laughs> like, you're not the same. It's just that I could see Rebecca in the Ratchet role and I could see Ted in the McMurphy role probably more the movie than the, the book because McMurphy was lifting other people up but a lot of the time in the book it was for his own gain so we don't really know why he was doing it but yeah um I can just imagine Ratchet sitting at home with a glass of wine figuring out how to one-up McMurphy like Rebecca did on Christmas Day or whatever I feel like Ted is doing the opposite thing to McMurphy though although somewhat unknowingly like for example I felt that the way McMurphy sized up a room it's quite similar to Ted, like they have very different reasons for doing it. But McMurphy certainly uses it a way to negatively manipulate other people. Whereas Ted, whether knowing he's doing it or not, has said himself he doesn't want anyone to get past him that might be hurting. So he sizes up the room for people who might be hurting. So those are some similarities that I can pull from it. Yeah, he's, like he proceeds to spot Sam's unhappiness in like episode one with absolutely no prompting from Sam, who's trying to put across this, I'm fine, I'm here, I'm ready attitude, but Ted knows that there's something wrong. So I also feel like when they said, when Chief said that nobody's sure if this barrel-chested man with a scar and the wild grin is play-acting or if he's crazy enough to just be like he talks or both, but they're all beginning to get a big kick out of going along with them. And I thought, well, if you swap barrel-chested and scar with moustache and winning smile, <laughs> don't know why I said it like moustache. That was weird. What's that about? I assumed it was your Scottishness. <laughs> oh, no, that's not sports. That's just me being a dick. <laughs> you could claim any pronunciation as Scots, and we'd never know the difference. Moustache. Have you all been walking about talking like proper English gentlemen? Hey, moustache. But yeah, that that could, could easily have been applied to Ted. The, the the misogyny of the novel actually like is interesting to me because obviously when it was written you know different times very very different times especially attitudes towards women um and men well, i wish it was more different than it is now but whatever um but ted lasso also though especially season one deals with misogyny also in a very different way in the way that rebecca and rupert are um portrayed by the press um and definitely you know rebecca as a whole in that first season it, it's always interesting to me now trying to think of those parallels but even when i read this book the first time um and you know now there's a whole prequel series that ryan murphy did on netflix that is as bad as ryan murphy as anything can get um, <laughs> It, it did. In, when I first read this book, I was always fascinated to think about the backstory of Nurse Ratched because it, it's just it, 
I mean, it's just it's one of those things that like cruelty is is something you have to learn and hatred is something you have to learn. And, you know, it's it's always interested me when you see truly dastardly people in movies, books, anything. I'm always like, what made them this way? And so, you know, it, what I love about Ted Lasso season one, especially is like Rebecca is our de facto villain, but they are very sure to give us the reasoning behind it. That same literally what the next paragraph says is you've literally you just there you go <laughs> everybody's just setting me up so well but yeah that's essentially it Rebecca has a three-dimensional dimensionality to her that that Ratchet doesn't yeah and I, I'm just I would just to say you know like like again there's you know there is a lot of misogyny that takes place among the the stuff and a lot of people have written about how there's like this emasculation type of thing dynamic going on between Nurse Ratchet and the men of the ward and everything like that. Take that for whatever you want. But like, I do love that. Like when I think about, you know, what's the backstory of what makes somebody like this, Mm -hmm. I'm glad that Ted Lasso gave us something similar to that, but gave us reasoning and gave us a way to walk through how that changes. Um, Yeah. And got rid of the first man to mention a woman's tits within at least the first five minutes of the episode. I was very (laughs) pleased about that. (laughs) So I, I love that you mentioned that though, because when I was I listened to the audiobook and through the first half, I'm like, this woman's just trying to do her job. Just let <laughs> her do her job. I'm not saying that her job was like a good one. I'm and, scared and of you now. Of, because of the mental health stuff, but yeah. No, I, I do disagree on that one. I have I maybe have a I do maybe have a bit of a controversial opinion, and that Mm -hmm. is that uh, in my mind, um, I do see some parallels between Ratchet and Rebecca only in that what but, but, you know, you see that you like you get that that sense that uh, it's almost like they come to this fork in the road. Right. And even when she is trying to buy into the Tedisms that we talk about and uh, the the lasso way, right? Um, that Rebecca is still always being kind of pulled back to this plot point of the the major league storyline. And I think a lot of people like forget going back to the show that she really was our main villain at first, uh, and she's of course redeemed in this wonderful way. Uh, and we absolutely uh, love Hannah Waddingham, and and we love that character. But it it's interesting that I see like there's almost two different paths that could have gone down, right? Because if you look at McMurphy as kind of the change agent in the ward, you see him um, sort of changing things up and not conforming. And in a lot of ways, again, there's a brief parallel there to Ted and coming into the locker room and coming into the organization as a whole and kind of shaking things up. And Ratchet is just not willing to allow this to happen. And at some point, there is a divergence between the two characters, right? Um, Ratchet becomes, if you're looking from the film perspective, the AFI, uh, the American Film Institute actually uh, put her as number five of the all-time villains of all all time. But um, I wouldn't say that about Rebecca Welton, clearly. So I mean, there there is this this pair this parallel uh, bit of how they deal with someone coming in and not conforming to what they expect, and then they do separate and kind of go on their own path from there. Here, guys, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump out. Oh no, I'm I'm gonna jump out, but um, I'm typing this in here. This was awesome. I want to come back. I want to listen more. Keep going. Keep going. Anytime. And, anytime. Uh, yeah. You guys are awesome. So we'll talk again soon. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye. Uh, bye. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to jump in because of course I have to, because this is just such a, like, I haven't, I also feel like I have a little bit of an interesting take. I am not at any stretch of the imagination condoning everything Ratchet was doing, Mm -hmm. but I, 
my mom has Alzheimer's and the need for a structure and like, uh, I wake up at this time and then I do this and then I do this. She has to have that. Otherwise it's chaos. Mm-hmm. And again, like they were doing, you know, horrible things there. But like the fact that Nurse Ratchet is seen as the villain and seen as a pretenders kind of drives me a little bit like, but because but, no, but, but. you do no. that for your mom to help her. She wasn't doing any of that to help them. But no, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. She said they need structure. She says it. They need structure and they do. Because I don't think... I don't feel like I don't feel like McMurray was actually helping help them at all. No, it's a shit. Thing, like freedom and like yeah, I don't know. So I I this is like it gets well, in my. I th- I think we can take a a little bit of a middle ground, <laughs> um, right? So because obviously structure is what some people need, but I think a one size fits all attitude towards mental health leads to all sorts of abuses because then people aren't going to get what they're needing and they're going to get worse and then things are going to get more draconian. So, and, yeah. And so both. Yes. I, I and think, balance, which is another Native American teaching as well, like the the, the idea of a, a balance of all things and balance between Ratchet and McMurphy might have, if, if those two had got together, well, there's a there's an image romantically i'm not going down that route jesus fuck no but if they have like put what's their the efforts... ted becca version of mcmurphy and, yeah. and ratchet well there is randall so rachel rachel i don't know i'll i'll leave uh, yeah i'll leave um the ted becca stuff to tori from their soulmates i'll leave it to her um but i will say that i i totally understand what you're saying like if they formed a partnership right it, much like we do see in ted and rebecca uh moving forward and we're starting to see the benefits of that for the club as a whole because everyone in that club is starting to buy yeah. into this idea and to buy into this philosophy that ted is preaching really and so uh, in that sense yeah absolutely i think that you know if those two characters in cuckoo's nest would have came together then perhaps uh there would have been some benefit to the ward but i just don't think that that is not clearly um something that was built into this character um and i i guess from a motivational standpoint perhaps she thinks that she's doing the best thing for uh these people but it's just um in incredible uh yeah. the, like how evil mm-hmm. she comes off in, well, in both media like I in both the film and in also the, the, book the way as well. that i kind of summarized the whole thing was that because we get that three-dimensionality to rebecca that we don't get with ratchet i kind of felt like it was left to me to surmise why she acted the way she did and i believe she acted the way she did and this comes back to i think marita you'd said about uh, uh, minorities oppressing other minorities and I kind of felt like, like as a woman from this perspective, that there isn't any other place she could have this much power over men, just in the asylum and over black boys, black men who, you know, these are the only kind of people that a woman at that time would have been able to have assert any power over. So was she doing that because she was wanting the power she couldn't get outside of the asylum, therefore her problem actually being with men? And I think the line that kind of cemented it for me was, we are all victims of a matriarchy. It's like inside there is the opposite of outside. 
you know, where she's like she's getting this power she hasn't had before, uh, and she's not using it. Well, same kind of like Nate, but you know, gets a bit of power. Mm. Turns out he's a bit of a dick. So that's why I mostly disagree on the ratchet thing because I do see where Betsy and I do see where Andrea is coming from. It's not easy to do these jobs, and I'm certainly not saying I would do any better, especially with the kind of red tape that the people have to work with. But I do think what what he is espousing is a bit of both would have probably gone a long way you know like if they could have just seen each other for same as Ted and Rebecca really if they could just see how each other ways work and let them work when they need to work I think that would have been really good and unlike Nurse Ratchet and this is why I couldn't get on board with it is we see Rebecca have remorse even before she admits what she's done we see through Hannah's performance there's glints in her eyes of sort of regret remorse shit what am I doing Uh, or at least that's what I get I might be projecting but we don't, I didn't pick up on any remorse whatsoever from Ratchet. In fact, as soon as something happened, like it took her two weeks to punish them for bad workhouse behaviour. And that is like, everything settled back down. If you really gave a shit about these people, what the fuck are you punishing them for? What does that do? Punishing people who can't control, you know, certain aspects of their behaviour, I don't think that's helping anybody. So that's probably why I go in so hard on Ratchet. But I do, yeah, I do think, that that's probably why is because she's we're meant to see that sort of bitterness in her that this is the only place she can exert that control. I I did read that there's a lost chapter of this book where all she's doing is standing in front of a mirror and spitting at the mirror. So um clearly uh lots of parallels here. <laughs> I, you had me in the first half. I was like, a lost chapter. Yeah. <laughs> I got so excited. I was like. <gasps> <laughs> I think the quote that hit me the hardest was on page 13, so not far in, and my favourite number. But, and this is the quote, and I'm going to take a bit of time in it, but it's the truth, even if it didn't happen. And that, ooh, I reread I read that quote three times, three different ways. It's such a beautifully wonderful quote. And I mean, I don't know if I can even explain myself where, but I think that's, it's true in all of us that we all have our experience with perspective, right? So... That you know, there's the three truths, whatever. There's their version, your version, and what's in between. Again, balance. Um, but it, it brought up this. It also made me think about the fog that Chief speaks of, which is obvious to the reader that they are manifestations of schizophrenia, but a really good story imagery tool as well. And I think Rebecca was fogged by her hatred of Rupert, and Ted was fogged that everything was okay when it clearly wasn't. When the fog clears will we be getting the authentic Rebecca and Ted and that sort of meeting in the middle, that balance? And I'll finish with my last favourite quote, which is, when you lose your laugh, you lose your footing. Well, I, I think that there's there's so many um, amazing things to discern from literature. And again, uh, I, unfortunately, Jeremy and I have had to uh, head out of the conversation a little bit earlier here. Uh, we're going to go to the Crown and Anchor and just wait for you all there. But I will say, I just want to mention again that I love this community. And in particular, the, the fact that I could get uh, some information, some amazing information about indigenous populations in the Pacific 
Pacific Northwest in this from a book that was written decades ago that was barely mentioned in this TV, in this TV show that we all love is just incredible. And I'm so glad. I think if I have your origin story correctly, you kind of came together around LassoCon. Is that about, uh, about the that, sense of yeah. it? And all of you uh, individually are so incredible in the Ted Lasso community. And so I wanted to make sure I said before I have to head out that just thank you for this amazing content that you put out, the amazing um, discussions that you have and uh, the amazing voices that you provide because there's a lot of people in podcasting that look and sound an awful lot like me and Jeremy. And so I'm really glad that there are people within the whole Lasso community that don't. Uh, and I think that that's really, truly valuable. So just thank you for letting us to to join today. We, I, I know that he does as well. Uh, he had to head out just a little bit earlier than I did, but uh, we both really appreciate it. And I can't wait to listen to the rest of this discussion uh, as well as a listener. So thank you. We're not letting you go without yeah telling you the same thing. Like yeah. a lot of this wouldn't be a thing if we hadn't seen other people doing it and seen how, you know, what they could do with the content and peanut butter and biscuits is it definitely one of those remember last of cotton really well so thank you for inspiring us yeah I will tell you what, uh, you know, uh, real quickly, I'm going to mention it in the intro to this episode for our listeners, um, but just for your listeners too. Uh, I had a death in the family uh, about uh, two weeks ago. It was very sudden and, and unexpected. Um, it had to do with a lot of addiction uh, and within uh, that person's life. And I, I will say that uh, Kenny, Tori, immediately reached out to me. And these are people that I've never met in person. These are people that uh, only know me through this connection with this show. Um, I know so many people that also reached out beyond even content creators because of this show. And so there's a healing property to this show that really doesn't exist elsewhere. And so that's why, you know, on Emmy night, even though it seems silly, I'm like rooting for this show, like it's my favorite sports team, right? And <laughs> there's a reason I go and buy FIFA 23 just so I can play as Sam Obasanya. And, you know, yes. it's just like, like, it's just, uh, there's so many things yeah. that come out of this show and you all are such a huge part of that. And I really appreciate everything that you do. So. And I'm sure you helped some people out like with that message that you put Absolutely. on. I'm really sure you helped people. Yeah. So well, I appreciate that. And, that. Uh, yes. uh, certainly it's um, it was something that just kind of came to me that morning and um, it was, I, I certainly have felt the love uh, and I really appreciate that. And I appreciate all of you. I'm going to head out, um, but I, I wish you the best of the rest of this discussion. And uh, I can't wait to discuss another book with you in the near future uh, as well. Thank you. So, and go Illinois. Go Illinois. Go Illinois. That's right. <laughs> Bye. 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 I love what he was saying there because it, it, like as soon as he's describing, you know, Kenny and Tori reaching out to him and everything, I immediately visualized that scene um, at the end of season two, where everyone is reaching out and texting Ted when the news about uh, oh, his mental yeah. health comes yeah. out, and like Michelle's reaching out to him, and Doctor Sharon and Rebecca and all of all of these people. Hey. Like it is about that community, and this is just a further example of that. So, okay, so. You know, I know that the the guys had to go, but I think I'd love to hear their take on on this particular section. I'm going to talk about why Ted avoids therapy, and I think that while it's 
clearly not a hundred percent a part of this. I think it might maybe it could connect to the fact that he's basing the concept of therapy uh, off of this book and or potentially the film. Uh, either way, it's not a good it's not a good look for therapy. <laughs> and and I think that's well, I'll get into it a bit more, but I think that's one of the problems with reading dated material as required school reading. But um, in season two, episode one, Higgins asked Ted what his thoughts are in therapy. And Ted replies, uh, general apprehension and a modest Midwestern skepticism. Why do you ask? I, I, I love that line, but uh, I think it's a gross understatement of Ted's position on therapy. He's just Ted and he's going to say the thing that that needs to be said or the thing that that the thing that he thinks needs to be heard uh but i do still want to think that his his hesitation with therapy kind of comes from uh part of this book right we know his only experience with therapy prior to sitting down with dr sharon is couples therapy with michelle and that did not turn out good because didn't they like go see her therapist, which is one thing you just like should not do? <laughs> that gave me pause. I'm like, wait a minute. No, you don't do that. You you need a neutral referee. That was poetic. That was poetic license if ever I've heard it, because that is not happening. If it is your therapist is bad, get rid of them. Yeah. You should you should see a different couple's therapist than individual therapist for sure. But I do think there's there's more to his disdain and his apprehension, as he calls it, to therapy than just his experience with Michelle. And so I'm going to go with the assumption or the headcanon that Ted read this book in high school as required reading, or maybe he didn't and he watched the film and thought he could get away with passing the test on it. You know, we all know his dad had to read him Johnny Tremaine. So <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe that's part of it. But the timing of his reading this book, if he did read it in school, would have coincided with probably the same year or the following year from his father's death, okay? Because he was 16 when he died, uh, when when his father died. And uh, usually this book is assigned to maybe at the earliest sophomores, it might be summer reading between sophomore and junior year. 16 is around that, that age, right? Um, so with this in mind, I think there are two ways that we can look at how this book might have influenced Ted's perspectives on therapy and mental health in general. It could, it could be one, one or the other, or maybe a combination of both. So the first one is, he's already too broken. I'm going to start with the darker one. <laughs> uh, so mental health care is the same as like in 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 ted's mind in like 16 year old ted's mind in 40 whatever ted's mind it's the same or could lead to being institutionalized right so he's like equating these things in my in my perspective and and it sounds extreme and we know ted is smart but if he read this book initially or watched this film initially after or while still grieving his father he might look at the outdated approaches by the big nurse as chief calls her uh, and the doctors at the facility and kind of panic about like what could happen to you right if you can't get over it by yourself then this is what's going to happen so he thinks he's going to be a chronic yeah yeah and i and i use the get over it phrasing intentionally because i do think there is this sort of mentality that he can just like power through it 
Uh, maybe it's not panic, but he would have a preconceived notion that it's a matter of fixing him and that if they can't, well, he's doomed, right? He's just, he's too broken. So there's one particular quote that I think like plays into this potential swaying of him in this direction. And, and I'd love to know your thoughts on it after I share it. The quote is what the, and I listened to the audiobooks so on page numbers. What the chronics are, or most of us, are machines with flaws inside that can't be repaired. Flaws born in or flaws beat in over so many years of the guy running head on into solid things that by the time the hospital found him, he was bleeding rust in some vacant lot. That's pretty dark. Uh, but to me, this speaks to the fact that Ted saw a flaw in his father and worries that like if he were to attend therapy, that it would be a sign that he too is a machine with flaws inside. Well, and how many times in the show do we see Ted run head on into things, right? He's always hitting doors. <laughs> Literally. Yes, I didn't. I totally forgot that. Run head on into things, right? It happens at least twice. Sorry, that was my interjection. No, I love that thought. Yeah, I'm curious about any thoughts on that, that concept of Ted thinking like, well, he's too broken for therapy like that's not something that could fix it maybe he would be that chronic we could certainly relate to the fact that you're like sometimes too scared to tell your therapist the truth because you're like what is going to happen to me if i do you know so even people who go to therapy aren't always honest with the therapist out of fear of that exact thing happening so i can imagine somebody with a skewed vision of therapy would have an even worse idea of that in their head than somebody who's already going to therapy and just a little bit lying to their therapist a wee bit yeah, and ted lies a lot to dr sharon at first i mean even if it's by omission he's just like everything's fine everything's great you know and it's clearly not and we can live in hope that he's lying about his favorite book <laughs> god we fucking hope so well, my second perspective on his reading of this book is that he can fix himself, right? Maybe he's not too broken, but he can fix himself. The way I was reading this book, it didn't seem like anything happening at the hospital, the group therapy sessions, the medical treatments, the electroshock therapy, any of this was actually helping the guys. It, it wasn't like, in fact, the things that seemed to be helping them the most were the everyday things. Now, I totally understand where Andrea is coming from with the routine, and that makes complete sense. And I think that that shift in routine could have thrown things off, but it was still establishing a new routine of things that like, like playing cards, uh, watching the ball game, even the fishing trip, you know, or being with the women, which we won't get into that, but like these sort of everyday things, those are the things that seem to be helping them and drawing them out of their, I mean, I don't want to say like everyday things can cure mental health. That's not what I'm trying to get at here. Yeah. I was trying to be careful with the same thing. So like you said, it was like, you, you just don't want to be like, well, this is exactly like, like what you said about the, the indigenous stuff, you know, but. Okay. So, so this is really interesting. And I think, I'm not sure we've discussed it just yet, but you know, Kesey had an interesting perspective when he wrote this because he was working um in a mental hospital right he it was a, a va hospital a psych ward down in the bay area uh and so he actually had a really good experience not a really good experience he had 
a lot of experience with knowing how people were treated and how mental health were tr was treated and, and how things were progressing. And I've seen some interesting perspectives with people writing about the function that McMurphy actually had in the ward, especially for Chief Bromden, was, uh, you know, guiding him through what was kind of a newish idea of talk therapy, right? I mean, that's that's a lot mm -hmm. of what he was doing and took him on this really significant immersive experience of salmon fishing, which sort of helped him you know, heal some wounds from when he was a child by sort of bringing that back to him. But yeah, no, I think that's really interesting because the, the therapies they were doing weren't working. And I think that right. was all part of Kesey's critique. But I, I think Kesey was also sort of getting at that there are things that are, are possible and, and sort of using McMurphy as... Even with mental health, you know, right. issues. Yeah. As a as a therapist, and I mean, I certainly like that read better than I've seen ones where they compare McMurphy to a Christ figure, and I'm like, no, can we not? <laughs> Definitely not Jesusy. Um, <laughs> I'm willing to accept Ratchet as the hero before I accept. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like neither of them are good in this situation. I just wanted to be clear, like I do not think Ratchet is everything she was doing was right. It was more like. Like everything that you read about the movie and the book is just like Ratchet was the evil, right? Like I even like Nurse Ratchet, like I even remember being little and that being a joke about like evil. Like Nurse Ratchet was like this icon of like horribleness. And like, yeah, she was doing horrible things, but so did McMurphy. McMurphy was a pedophile. He like raped a girl that was Un unapologetic, yeah. One at one point she was nine years old, at another point she was sixteen. It's like, hold on, this guy's the hero, and I don't remember which one has which age, but like it changes between the book and the movie. It, it's yeah, it's disgusting. In in the book, it's sixteen. Yes. Um, so or or it's the older age in the book because I didn't yeah. key in on the nine. But yeah, and and even the phrasing he used, you know, she she tripped me and somehow got under me before I fell on the floor. It was something like that. We're like, yeah, no, he's awful, and and I think that's why I'm more forgiven to Ratchet too, is because yeah, she while she was doing terrible things, she was also sticking with the norms of what was expected for mental health treatments at that time. Like electroshock therapy was something they thought would work or that they claim they thought that that would work not and the so, way they used it like yes but not the way they used it sure and and i'm not saying she didn't overstep boundaries and i think a lot of that has to do with what you were talking about in your section in terms of her like establishing her position of power in the in the sort of hierarchy and and like i said i don't want to say that like everyday activities can cure mental health issues that's not that's not what I'm getting at here but we know that there are better and more helpful approaches than those that were being used and that for some of these men especially because many of them were there voluntarily or at least you know they could what do you call it they could AMA they could leave AMA what does that mean? <laughs> against against medical advice. But oh, they do yeah. Call okay. Yeah, but th they could leave on their own accord, basically. I think that, again, this reading books that are dated, well, a great thing to do is a very, like, it's something you need to be cautious of, because especially when you're giving it to young readers like that, there might not be that ability to sort of separate the the time and the treatment to the same extent that we can uh, as adults. And I, so I have two, two quotes here um, in terms of moments in the book where I think 
suggests that Ted could have pulled out this idea of like curing himself of whatever it was, even if he recognized it. So the first one is he knows that you have to laugh at the things that hurt you just to keep yourself in balance, just to keep the world from running you plumb crazy. So this one spoke to me as something that Ted has internalized, right? Like laugh so you don't cry, make a joke, be dismissive so that your hurt doesn't show. Conceal don't feel, right? Elsa, anyone? We can go back to to our Elsa conversation. So I I don't know. I that was one that stood out to me. And then I also think it's not just keeping yourself in balance, though. It's about coming across as strong. And there's another quote in the book that says, he knew you can't really be strong until you can see a funny side of things. And so I'm not a Midwestern man like Ted, and this is kind of where I wish that that Jeremy <laughs> and Craig could still be around as Midwestern men. You know, so maybe I'm off base here, but like I feel like there's a very long running tradition of men having to act strong. And if and strong doesn't necessarily have to mean muscular in this sense, but like emotionally solid and 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 not what is seen as emotionally weak, which means letting people see those emotions. And <laughs> which we all know isn't weak but like also that is very ingrained in in western society and so i think if ted thinks that the approach to being strong is seeing the humor in things and kind of like blocking out reacting to the negative feelings that fits his character pretty well so i don't know what y'all think about that take as well i think you're killing it I, I think something that's really marketed in the book is uh, like they, in addition to laughter suppressed, like kind of all sorts of emotions are suppressed, right? Cheswick drowns and it's kind of upsetting, but it's not grief, right? Billy commits suicide, Chief euthanizes McMurphy, and, and there's just this very practical, we're moving forward sort of approach to things and, and no one's feeling it. Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like it's yeah. absolutely deadened yeah right so so yeah can i ask a question about billy like that's the other thing we're at as well is like surely if she was doing her job properly she would have sorted his fucking mother out because that like he was fine when he got laid it wasn't until he started getting shamed for getting laid and threatened with his mother's fucking wrath that he took his own life so like yeah I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm not a complete ratchet apologist. Oh, no, this isn't, this isn't me thinking <laughs> against, you know, like that. No, this is a separate issue altogether. Like, no, I, I totally get it. I'm... No, I, I agree. I think, I mean, I, I sort of see her as seeing that as a woman, as one of the sort of rare ways that women can sort of at that time have power over mm -hmm. men right was this sort of moral shaming sort of thing and the mother is just a tool for that because if his mother isn't involved why does he have to care to be ashamed yeah i think it's interesting because with all the misogyny in the book this is kind of an aside so apologies with all the misogyny in the book directed towards ratchet kesey writes about sex workers relatively respectfully not in yep. how everyone treats them, but in yeah. the overall attitude. Does did you guys yes. pick that up too? I That's why that. I was like, this is progressive in some ways and reductive in others, because that was one of the ways that I felt it was progressive, really, for its time. Right. So just want to wrap up saying, like, I did not dislike this book, you know, as there might have been worries for, but I 
will say that there are definitely much better and less dated options out there if we want students in particular to read about mental health and mental health treatment in today's world. I looked up some titles and some of them looked really good to me, but I hadn't read them, so I don't want to like necessarily recommend them here. But there's definitely ways in which we look at mental health in a much healthier way today. And hopefully, you know, 50 years from now when we write the next like bunch of books that there'll be more um more progressive ways of looking at mental health as well so if anybody has any titles that they think would be good for today's readers uh, you know i'd love to to hear that so i don't i i do think it's interesting because i absolutely agree with your point of you know whether or not high school students will sort of immediately kind of get what they need to out of this. And I think part of that issue is how much teachers are being pressured not to have these discussions <laughs> Yeah, about, you know, even if they're teaching the books, they might not feel comfortable about having these discussions of, about how they were treating mental health then, how they were talking mm -hmm. about, you know, how Kesey used sort of misogyny and racism in the book, you know, that it, I think a lot of teachers are in a position where even if they sort of have to, based on a syllabus, teach the book that, those conversations could cost them their jobs. And I think that's really unfortunate that that is happening in so many areas. Mm -hmm. um, Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. Is a great mental health book. Modern and like, like and getting to the end and just being like, you know, this is a journey and I've just started even just that. I love it. Thank you. I'm going to check that one out. That's going to be added to my list now. Me too. Uh, yeah. And, and like, to the point, and like, I almost would be interesting to dissect a little bit why, why this book was so problematic. We all agree how problematic it is, but also like love it. Cause I gave it four stars on Goodreads. Like when I was done, like I, like I loved the book. It was just hard. And I, I don't know. And I, and I can't really explain why Yeah, Like, like even, um, um, I'm blanking on the book name, uh, F fuck Scott Fitzgerald. Beautiful and damned. I knew that would come in handy. I knew that would come in handy. <laughs> um, right? Like beautiful prose, right? I think both Marita and I had things about like, oh, this quote is so beautiful. And Michaela's like, fuck, throw this, but like this book needs to be <laughs> garbage and he's right, like fuck them. So what what I don't know. I don't know what it was about this book. And maybe it is the fact Same. that like there's that duality in it where there's problematic but good and like you know where like some of those other books was just like this is just all problematic yeah the intention I could feel the intention more with it does that make sense yes like I, with this one I could feel that the, the intention was didactic in a way that wasn't like pissing all over other people to get that point mm -hmm. made but also sometimes it was so yeah balance yeah we have to balance we have to go back to that which I've already said, but I watched the movie and read the book. So it was just kind of, for me, an interesting, like um, some of the points that were slight, that were slightly different in the show that just, you know, kind of stood out for me in my, in my theme, um, but were different from the, from the book. I have mentioned them, but I will try and say like, this was more in the movie. And so like, just in general, so this, you know, this book was hard for me. And like I said, it wasn't hard for me to, to read in a negative as in, giving it a bad review. I gave it a really good review. I, I enjoyed the book, but there were just some particular trigger triggers for me. And it was about the long-term facilities. Like I've said, 
you know, um, seeing people in long-term facilities being abused is like, yeah, was my number one fear about finding a place for my mom and like the repeated like implication, you know, like kind of hints at sodomy and rape and like abuse is just like everything, like all my worst nightmare wrapped up into one beautiful package there for me. So like, that's why it was hard. It wasn't that I was just like, this book's gross. It was, I mean, like that stuff is gross, believe me, but like that wasn't, it was like more just like you're hitting, like you've just found my one nerve and you're just like, yep, yep, yep. Here, you know, here's your thing. Yeah. That Um, makes so much sense. Yeah. And, um, and the book was harder than the movie. The movie like muted a lot of that, like a ton of it. It was still there. And there were a couple of scenes where like, you can kind of see like one of the orderlies, like kind of roughing up some of the guys are like kind of poking at them and stuff like that. And like, just not treating them like human beings. And these people are human beings, you know? And I, and I do feel that that was something I think that maybe ratchet, maybe ratchet in the movie potentially um, was slightly like, like she was interacting with them more in the movie where I felt like in the book, they just kind of kept talking about, she was like just behind that screen, like watching, you know, like these were like, these were zoo animals or something, you know, like she's just observing, you know? And like, I think, I feel like in the movie, she had a lot, it was a lot more of them having those like sit down sessions with them talking like they're humans because they are. So something I thought was interesting, and y'all might have read this, but I don't know if you did or not. Um, so that was filmed at the state hospital in Salem, which the the it was in an unused ward, and that part of the hospital's been torn down for the most part. Um, but so the book came out in '62. The film came out in I think '75, and because of sort of the way that treatment was progressing, the hospital part of the conditions of like them filming the movie there. Uh, not any of the main actors, but there are a lot of actual patients that are used in in the scenes. And there's interesting ideas about consent um, that come up there. But I thought that was interesting that, you know, the hospital thought that this could be therapeutic for them to take play, to take part in something like that. I, I think that's an interesting dimension to the movie. No, no, no. That's actually really interesting to hear because I would automatically go, oh, unethical. But at the same time, is that not just doing what Nurse Ratchet does? We've got to find the balance, right? You've got to be like, which patients may be right for this, which is, you know... So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And um, kind of taking in a little bit about what we were talking earlier, I'm just taking a moment to say too, like um, the thing I think that um, Ratchet was missing that Mc, uh, McMurphy, I always want to say his name differently, McMurphy. Uh, you are, you're being like Nurse, Nurse Ratchet when she calls him McMurray yeah. <laughs> throughout, right? <laughs> or like Kevin and Kenny. Like, I do that all the time. So interestingly, um, I think one of Kesey's contemporaries when he was in the writing program at Stanford was Larry McMurtry. And so that's what I always want to say instead of McMurphy is McMurtry. And I probably have done it more than once today. Um, but Yeah. McMurphy was, was bringing joy to them. Pleasure, like finding pleasures in life again, right? Like they don't have, just because they're institutionalized doesn't mean like, well, that's all they can ever do right? Like music, like the, right. The, what they found, especially with Alzheimer's, like that music brings back memories and I have seen it. My mom doesn't remember what she did five minutes ago. I play one of her songs from her childhood. She knows every word, every word, you know what I mean? And sings along and, and, and she like, she like lights up. Right. And like, 
that, but that's such a modern thing, right? Like back then I'd be like, no, 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 don't, you know, don't bring up the, don't bring up things that are memories for them. Like, no, they have memories and feelings and, and we have to embrace those, you know? Well, I thought another interesting thing, and it's another, sorry to bring it back to this and I won't take too long with this, but another parallel is the whole thing with gambling, because in Salilo Village, with all of the different cultures coming together, gambling would have just been a, a, a way of interacting mm -hmm. with people, right? It was a natural thing. You even hear Chief talk about it when he talks about rolling dice. You know, missionaries came along and treated it like a vice when it really wasn't. It was just a social interaction. And so McMurphy brings it into the ward. And he's taking money off people, but everyone knows it. Nobody's particularly upset about it, right? Um, but she turns it into this, into something that it doesn't need to be. Uh, and I think that's also an interesting, interesting commentary. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then one last thing about Nurse Ratch, I just want to say um, a little bit kind of off topic, but Shout out to Louise Fletcher. She just passed away, uh, the who played Nurse Ratchet in September. And she was also my favorite antagonist of Kai Wen in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So good. Love it. Love that you brought it back to that. That makes me so happy inside. <laughs> Kai Wen was, ooh. I love this. I love this so much. I just get all these little tidbits of information of everyone and it's just so brilliant. Yeah, I think I think I just because Angela Lansbury just died too, right? And I read that she was initially offered Nurse Ratched, but she turned it down because she had. Uh, if you all haven't seen the original Manchurian Candidate, it's amazing, and she is like the best villain of all time in that film. Um, but after she played that, she was like, "I'm gonna I'm gonna play nice people now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna play nice people now." <laughs> Mad respect for that. So my angle theme is how this is an alternate reality AFC Richmond team. I wouldn't go so far as to say this is like the team before Ted. Um, but I definitely felt that, that like maybe AFC Richmond under Rupert was clearly a very toxic environment. And that's what this is a very toxic environment. Um, and so there's some similarities there and some, you know, like something about the environment, like kind of the environment they were all in just kind of swirling in on itself you know, and this charismatic person kind of comes in and like goes against the grain, you know, like sending everyone off into like this new direction and everything. That's where similarity is. So, so actually I had this thought and it popped out of, into my head while I was reading and then left until you brought this up. But if I had to cast anyone that we see in the show as McMurphy, it would be George, right? He's got the casual misogyny. He's got sort of the chaos. He's always, you know, he wanders around in those tight shorts, kind of like, and uh, I don't know if you picked it up. I don't even think it's in the movie. The dick joke about his shorts, right? In the book. I yeah. love that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Michaela, do you know what I'm talking about? The, a dick joke about where in the book is it? Because McMurphy wanders around in those, in those black satin shorts and he says his girlfriend, who was a, a literary studies major, gave them to him, but they've got white whales white on them. White whales, right? So they're yeah. Moby Dick shorts. <laughs> Right. Which is why they're always antagonizing Ratchet. <laughs> I literally tried to look for ages in what the symbolism of fucking McMurphy and Moby Dick and fucking all this shit would be. And it turns out it's just because it's a literal pair of Moby Dick shorts. That is my assumption. I could be missing something. Good, because I couldn't find anything. <laughs> All right. So both stories have a protagonist and antagonist roles um, in their, you know, um, uh, but they all they also they both all have a, a clear protagonist antagonist in a way but then they also kind of turn these roles on their head so each character in their roles gets turned clearly on their head in several clear examples so i feel like nurse ratchet mcmurphy chief rebecca ted nate 
are all characters who role whose role shifts. Um, you know, was Nurse Ratchet evil or was she just trying to, you know, give these people a sense of order and care and normalcy? Was McMurphy trying to break some boundaries here to help these people or was he an asshole? I don't know. Was Rebecca malicious or was she just hurting? Is Ted helping the team believe or is he hurting them by not being honest, not seeing Nate's pain, ignoring him? You know, the reality is most people shift between both roles and people are nuanced. So uh, looking at this idea of kind of these alternate realities between everything. So I kind of put Nurse Ratchet and Rebecca together, the female lead in both universes, both have a level of power control, both, both have a level of power and control, both struggling to be the one honing the direction of these groups of men. Nurse Ratchet is clearly portrayed more on the side of negative while Rebecca has a twist in her character. But again, these are some things, there are some things Nurse Ratchet was doing and her environment could be understood. But, you know, the creating a daily routine, the normalcy, the daily habits can be a helpful environment for some people struggling with what is reality. She was seen as kind of wielding this uncontrolled power, but Rebecca in the build, and Rebecca in the beginning at Ted Lasso did have a bit of the same feeling. She was overseeing things from a distance. She had no connection to any of the players, um, kind of also watching them from behind a glass wall very good and you know ratchet and her, and her crew um who did her bidding were also you know kind of watching things over rebecca was separated from her team kind of entirely like there's those weird scenes where she's like i don't even know who you people are you people that work for me you're like you're just kind of these like they're all pawns they were kind of felt like all pawns in her game obviously Rebecca, we, we learned a lot more about Rebecca and turned and were able to turn her around her character. Ted and McMurphy, uh, both the outsiders who come in and sh shake things up. I think both characters have that duality to them, a protagonist and antagonist. Both come in and shake things up. They do things differently. They cause a ripple in some ways seen as a hero and in others being hurtful. But a clear malevolence to McMurphy, he said ugly things. He implied things. He treated women horribly. Um, he was everything Ted would never be, but there was that same element of like a ripple effect of like, you know, again, he, he, he wanted to bring some joy to them. Like, Leia, let's go fishing. Let's do this. Like he, he wanted to show him the baseball game and like, why can't we change our bedtime to watch the baseball game? Cause like men love baseball, you know, or a lot of people love baseball, but like give them something. It's exciting. I think it was the home, right. The home team was playing. I think it was kind of was being implied and like the world series and like, let them watch it. Nate versus Billy or Cheswick between, between the book and the movie, which one you want to kind of focus on like the victims of the protagonist, McMurphy's action spiraling Billy Cheswick while Ted empowers Nate, but ultimately creates disillusionment that pushes Nate away. So the clear themes of kind of order versus chaos are interesting here. When you look at these two together, I feel the book and the movie were a clear message about nature versus institution, non-conformity versus conformity, what's good and what's bad here, who was the good one, who was the bad one. And so like, especially an institution like that, I think that was kind of a key theme, like kind of, yeah, definitely like how we had to institutionalize these people and what is that was that against nature? And then there's something similar there with Ted in trying to create order in the chaos, but also creating some chaos of his own, not just his chaos hammer. <laughs> um, so Ted is obviously a much more inclusive, empowering, like a good story, like happy, bringing people together, but life isn't simple and everything isn't black and white. And the cuckoo's nest wasn't, wasn't quite as nuanced as I believe Ted Lasso is. But yeah, those were, those were my thoughts. That 
what you said about Rebecca with the window, mm. as soon as you said that, I was like, fuck yes. Do you think when she sort of starts opening the window and shouting down at the team that that's a sort of breaking of the window, but she did it instead of McMurphy does it, you know, antagonistically, but like she's opening the window herself. And like, is that, do you think that could be? Mm. I think so. This is something we talk about in a lot of our episodes is the being cautious of making one-to-one parallels between characters because they're not identical. They are their own nuanced characters, but that doesn't mean we can't find these similarities in them and, and these sort of behavioral things that just pertain to humanity in general. And, and our understanding of Rebecca, I think, I think for me, it is understanding characters like Rebecca that make me pause when I think about characters like Ratchet, right? That make me pause and say, there's more to that story. She is by no means the hero of that story. I would never claim that, right? But I do think that there is, you know, if we question what is behind her actions, then we're if not more forgiving, at least more uh, understanding or empathetic to where she came from, if not where she is now. Like boiling a frog. So like Ratchet is basically what Rebecca would have been in, say, 10 years if she hadn't have come out of this sort of like revenge plot that she was in and just got worse and worse and worse and as the time went on. So yeah, I suppose like if you take Ratchet back to the very start of the shit, what happened to her? And there's well, no, there's no denying that she was they were sexually aggressive with her. Like there's reference in the book, isn't there, that she was a former army nurse? I think when they go up to the um to the other floor where the nurse is kinder, uh, and she mentions uh, another horribly misogynistic statement that's something like they should never have army nurses and single women over thirty five should be forced out or fired or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember <laughs> that. Like, it's like women can't be single and also nice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, clearly not. But but yeah, so I do think at least in the book there is mention of her being an army nurse, and so I I wonder if the backstory lies a little bit in the regimented nature of of treating people, particularly focused on sort of war trauma that um, maybe broke her. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or at least informed her treatment style to the extent that she wasn't going to be capable of helping people in a more modern environment. Lots to think on here. <laughs> and and again, love it from sort of a seemingly throwaway line that was probably more geared towards the movie than the book. We were able to pull out a really great cohesive discussion of how this book and these characters and the show can teach us similar, similar lessons. And we just want to say a big thank you to Craig and Jeremy from Peanut Butter and Biscuits. Um, So please, if for any reason you've managed to check us out, but not them, get over there and check out their wonderful podcast. They've had some excellent interviews recently, some really good content. And we're sorry they had to go, but you know, hey, our podcasts are long. And if you listen to it, you you know, that's just how we roll. That's how we do it. And, <laughs> you want to be on the podcast? You got to book yourself at least two hours for us. <laughs> and that's with us talking over each other. Can you imagine how long they would be if we just talked one after the other? We'd be about four hours deep. And I love it. <laughs> Andrea, you, I'm hoping we'll know what's up next. Because as usual, I don't. <laughs> I do. 
It Yay. is Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds Change Our Minds and Shape Our Futures by Merlin Sheldrake. Fantastic. Yes, Very and Ted exciting. is such a fun guy. So, Are we going to make lots of non-fungible jokes? <laughs> On that note, everybody, we'll see you next time. <laughs> see you Bye. next time. Bye. Bye. Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club or send us an email at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family and leave a five-star review.